Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 9, and when you get to Genesis chapter 9, a couple of things have happened in the world when you get to Genesis chapter 9. One is God created the world. That's in Genesis chapter 1. He created everything perfectly. Everything was exactly the way it was supposed to be. When God does something, he doesn't do it halfway. He does it exactly the way it's supposed to be done. He did it perfectly. But then in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world because the, men, the man and woman that God had created, Adam and Eve, they chose to disobey God. They took a fruit that God said, do not take. They chose to do that. Of course, there was judgment that comes because that's what happens with sin. God can't stand sin. He therefore must judge it, and he did. And by judging it, he simply did not allow them to live in this perfect Eden, this Garden of Eden to live in, but he still, he created them. He wanted, they were, they were his reflections of his glory. He wanted them to he gave him the, the commandment in verse, uh, chapter 1 in verses 26, 27, 28 where he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So he wanted them to do that. So he allows them to continue to live. Um, but as they do so, they start being fruitful and multiplying. But the Bible tells us in chapter 6, they got pretty wicked. They got pretty wicked. They made, they made a mess out of things. I don't even really know. Only the Lord really knows what all was going on back then. But apparently it wasn't good. It does say in one place in chapter 6, I believe it's verse 11, it says that violence filled the earth. Now, I don't know how it is for y'all, but that kind of rings a little bit too true. <laughs> violence filling the earth. Uh, but at the same time, the violence was filling the earth. And uh, God looked down and he said, I, I can't, can't handle this. I'm not going to deal with this any longer. And he sent what we often refer to as the great flood or Noah's flood. He put Noah and his family, about eight people, on an ark, a boat, put all the animals, the pairs of animals on there. Y'all know the story of Noah's ark. They get on there and then God just deluges the world, just completely covers the world. I think it's something like uh, it was, it was uh, about 40 days, I want to say, how many days it rained, and then it took a while for all that rain to go down. Everybody on the earth was, was killed. Everybody was dead because of this flood. And at this point in chapter 9, we still see God talking to Noah, because God, or rather Noah had found grace in God's sight, so they're having a relationship, a conversation. And God is essentially reestablishing everything. He's kind of getting everything going. All of humanity has been wiped out except for Noah and his family. Chapter 9, we see God talking to Noah. He says, now I'm going to get this thing going again. He sets up a few different rules and a few different things. Uh, for example, one of the things he talks about in here is that, that it, before, apparently, it was not allowed, not, per, not permitted by God for humanity to eat flesh, human, eat um, animal meat. Weren't allowed to do that. But in this passage, in chapter 9, they're allowed to do it. So he changes a few things up there, but he, but he says something, and he kind of reestablishes something in chapter 9 and verse 6. I want you to see this. I want to call your attention to it. Just draw down there and look at these two verses, chapter six and chapter, or chapter 9, verse 6, and chapter 9, verse 7. I'm going to look at two verses here. I want you to see what he says here. He says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now, now, I want to make draw your attention very quickly that this is a little bit different, a little new from human perspective. Because you know that people were killed before this. In fact, there's a very famous one. I, I skipped over it in my summary. And that was where Cain 
one of Adam and Eve's children, killed one of their other children named Abel. You know this Cain and Abel story? He killed him. Do y'all know what happened to Cain? He had a mark on him. He was punished, but he wasn't killed. There was no demand for his blood. Now, the Bible tells me that Abel, the man who was killed, his blood cried out for vengeance. That's what it did. It did cry out for it, but there was no command for that. But here God is saying, listen, when y'all kill people, I'm going to expect some retribution for that. Look what he says. Go back to it, verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. The big message, and we'll take this, take a few minutes to develop this, but the big message is that God cares about human life. He created it. He thought enough to create it. He thought enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die so that all men might have life. He cares about this. He wants us not only to stop killing each other, <laughs> but also to help each other flourish. That's what verse 7 is really about. I want to take just a few moments to talk to you this morning about the sanctity of life and what our responsibility is. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll go into this thought. Lord, I pray that you will help me to share with these people your heart for life. I pray that you will convict each person here in the unique way that they have the ability to serve you. you convict them of their opportunities and their, the need for them to fight on behalf of your heart for the sanctity of life. Please provide that to us this morning. We'll praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned to you in the announcements, I want to lead us in a focused time of praying and grieving over life this week here at McConnell Road Baptist. I need to remind you that there were, there are on a weekly basis, I don't know if this has changed much overall of the U.S. during this period of time with COVID-19, but generally there are about 17,000 children who would have been born but because of a decision that was made, not because of health problems necessarily, but because of a decision that was made, they are killed on a weekly basis in this country. I want to make that a little more personal. Here in the Greensboro area, that's about 40 per week that are their lives are taken. I understand more anecdotally from the Love Life organization who's watching all this happening and they're paying attention to all this, those numbers have almost doubled during COVID-19. There are more women going for abortions during COVID-19. The statistics tell me that on average, about 25%, about one in every four women have experienced an abortion. And let's don't forget the fact that uh, last time I went to biology class, it wasn't just a woman that was having a baby. It takes a man to participate in that. And most of the time, I understand from those who are really on the front lines consulting and advising and, and counseling with these women, a lot of times, as much as we talk in this country about freedom of choice and it's your right to choose and all that sort of thing, a lot of times these women are doing this because they've got a husband or a boyfriend or a mom and a daddy who's insisting that they do this. And they are feeling pressure by this. And in fact, sometimes they can be abused if they are not participating in abortion. Men, I believe, are as big, if not a bigger, part of the problem. 
Would you believe that over half of the women that say that they've had an abortion, that they would identify as being Christians? Do you believe that? Can you believe that? I'm also hearing in this country right now the phrase, and you've heard it a bunch, I'm sure, and some of you have different reactions to it, that black lives matter. And I know some of your reactions in your mind immediately, all lives matter. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. But we have a real problem in this country. For far too long, black lives have not mattered on the whole. And you know what? 40%, and by the way, you know the black population makes up roughly, what is it, about 13, 15%, something like that, of our U.S. population? Almost half, 40% of those babies that are aborted are from, with black women. Now, tell me, tell me does the, the, those lives matter? I believe that they do. Now, I, I, I want you to understand, I, I know that some people want to use that phrase, Black Lives Matter, to, to use it as a power graph to advance a Marxist agenda, which I would completely abhor and completely be against. They want to unravel. There are some people, there are some elements in our nation right now who want to unravel our society. That's what they want. You look at what they believe, what they stand for. They want to unravel our society at the seams and start over with whatever they have in their mind. And I want to stand here very plainly. Sometimes I know I can come across as a little vague on some of these political issues. I want to be as clean as I can be. I am absolutely, absolutely, positively against that organization that would put the name, put its name on itself as the Black Lives Matter organization. I'm against it. However, on the other hand, I want to be clear, as clear as I was on that, that black lives do indeed matter. And they matter in the womb as much and more. In some cases, they matter as much as they do out of the womb. Let me make it clear here. We have a problem. And by the way, Greensboro, I, I know I'm looking at a predominantly white, or, uh, white uh, congregation this morning. I know that. But if you do not care for your black brothers and sisters, you have a problem. You have a very serious problem. And that pro I, I, I can't solve all of the racial... I mean, good gracious, it's been going on for hundreds of years. I can't solve it. I'm not even going to try to solve it. And some of you probably looking at me saying, well, why are you even talking about it then? Well, I'm talking about it because we have a responsibility as a church in this small area. This small area. This is a small area, but it's a huge area in terms of life. But a small area to stop what I would consider to be a genocide in this country of so many millions of babies lost year over year. The question then becomes, really, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? The first thing you need to understand, as we suggested here, is that humanity is made in God's image. All of humanity is made in God's image. In verse 6, God reestablishes his mandate. He says there, that, uh, the last part of that, he says, in, in the image of God created he man, and then he goes on in verse 7 to say to be fruitful and multiply. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, you would see a lot of the same language. He's essentially using the same idea again. You need to understand that the reason that you were created, and I'm saying you, I mean all of humanity, but every person in this room specifically, the reason that you were created and the way that God created you was in his image. You were made to reflect the love, the goodness, and the glory of God. The, very ex the, the fact that you sit here, that you exist today, that you think, that you breathe, the very reason that you exist 
is to bring glory to God. Now let's think about that for just about a second here. How much glory is God really getting from our lives? The fact of the matter is, in too many cases, the answer has to be not so much. Because we live wickedly, we sin willfully, He's not getting a whole lot of glory. But let me tell you, even in those cases, even though the, 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 the sin has covered us up and made them, the, the, has masked the glory of God, God's glory is so bright and so brilliant that even in the most sinful face, God's glory still shines. Even if dimly, it still shines. He says that we are made in His image. We are to reflect His glory. We are to show everybody how good God is. That's why we exist. He goes on in verse 7 to say that we need to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, we need to fill the earth with his glory. Our very existence, again, I, I want to reiterate that when Jesus saves a man, he changes a man so that he can actually do and be what God created him to do and to be. That's why God saves us. But even an unsaved man, his very existence is an act of worship. Think about it this way. The more people on the planet in all of the hues and tones and every other look and feel and shape and size, every person on this planet, all those people, the more that there is, that means there's more reflection of God on this planet. Now, I know that there are some, and you may have read after them, and you may have even thought about them a little bit, where they start talking about how we've got too many people on the planet, we can't sustain them, and all this other stuff. And I know that we have to be wise. We're supposed to be stewards of God's resources. I understand that. But nowhere in the Bible, if I'm looking at the Bible as my source, nowhere in the Bible are we told to, well, let's just don't worry about those groups over there because they're taking up too many resources. No, 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 no. We need to bring more people to this planet. We need to say this is a good thing because God is seen in every face. God is seen in every color, every tribe, every gender. By the way, there's only two of those, but nonetheless, there's oh, every gender, there's every language, every culture, every location, every place. If there are human beings there, God's face is seen. His glory is seen. If you don't believe me, do you know what heaven's going to look like? Let me, let me just read this to you, what heaven's going to look like. They sung a new song saying, speaking to Jesus, thou art worthy to take the book, and open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests. You know who's sitting around the throne of heaven? This is what Revelation 5 tells me. It says there, every kindred, every tongue and people and every nation. There is not going to be something not represented in heaven. Everything is in heaven because those people, every, every shape and size, created to reflect God's glory. And when they're redeemed, as they said that God had redeemed them, when they're transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, those people actually worship him like you ain't never believed. When we get to heaven, if, if other races make you, and we we call them races, if we, we think these other races make us uncomfortable and have it now, well, good gracious, there is no segregation in heaven. It doesn't even exist. It's not even a thing. In fact, if it makes you uncomfortable now, you don't want to go to heaven because you're going to be rubbing shoulders with all sorts of people. If, there's, there's some, if there are people on this planet now, and I know that we, we all have this tendency, I have it as my, myself, you know, there are certain people because of things they do or things they say that make you so mad you want to kill them. 
You know the thought I'm having. I'm not, I'm not even talking about the joking kind of killing. I'm talking about like I'd really like to, if I could have the time and opportunity and the weapon in my hand, I could take them out. And, and we, we, can, we can have those feelings. But if, there's, if that kind of hate is in your heart on an ongoing basis and with enough people, you don't want to go to heaven because there's all kind of people there. All of those people. And God has saved every one of them. Some of them, if you knew their backstory, you wouldn't want to be in the same room with them. Some of them, if you knew what they had been into, you wouldn't want to be in the same room with them. But what God has done is he has made humanity in his image. I want to read you another passage. This is from a writer, a British writer named C.S. Lewis from the last generation. And here's what he's, he wrote in a book, one of my favorites of his, called The Weight of Glory. He says, the dullest and most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet now, you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. The two destinations he's essentially talking about is heaven or hell. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Thinking about that, think about that. Should we not, instead of seeing the other, whoever they are, as the other side of the issue, instead see them as creatures like us who will go and spend eternity in heaven or spend eternity in hell? He says there are no ordinary people you have never talked to mere mortals think about that no one no one in this room is ordinary no one in this room is just a mortal that's just gonna today and then gone tomorrow no no no, no. he says nations cultures arts civilizations these are mortals and their life is to ours as of the life of a gnat but it is immortals you immortals with whom we joke more, uh, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. We've got to understand that God created humanity. When he created a man, he, he, it's, not, it's not something that's going to disappear. He created an eternal soul. And that soul is going to dwell somewhere for he, forever, heaven or hell. And when you see another person, even if you disagree with them or you don't even like them, you need to understand God made them. And he made them in his image, just like he made you in his image. He made them in his image. And my job then is not to, let me just go ahead and tell you, in case you needed the reminder, we're not supposed to take human life. We're not supposed to take human life. Look at what he says in verse 6. Whoso sheddeth a man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. You should not take human life. Shedding of blood in that phrase is just essentially an, uh, a metaphor for taking a life because the life is in the blood. In fact, if you go back to verse 4, he talks about this, that if you take my blood away from me, I don't have a life. I'm, I'm dead. I'm gone. So blood, the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17 also reiterates this. 17 verse 11 says, and the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so then he says, don't, 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 don't kill somebody. Don't take their lives. But he says in Exodus chapter 20, he just makes it plain in case that wasn't clear enough for you. He just goes ahead and says, thou shalt not kill. He said, don't kill people. Stop killing people. 
And you say, well, why is that? Because, well, killing's mean. No, that's not why it is. It's rude to kill people. No, that's not what it is. It has nothing to do with it. It makes a mess. It's not good for society. All sorts of reasons. No, no, that's not what it is. There's one reason we don't kill people. Taking a life is an attack on the glory of God. Taking a life is an attack on the glory of God. If, 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 if mankind was not made in the image of God, then all bets were off on taking his life. You understand that? Morality is nothing, it's not based on what my feelings are. It's based on the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word is that you are made in the image of God. And for me to attempt to kill you, and of course, worse, if I have to go through with killing you, that is me attacking God. That's why he sends the flood in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. The earth was filled with violence. Jesus even goes a little bit further in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. And he says not just to not just take their life, he adds to it. And Jesus has the right to add to the word, by the way. He can add whatever he wants to. It's his word. And he says, I'm going to add not just enough to kill somebody, not just enough to take their life. He says, you're not even supposed to dishonor a human being with cursing them or wishing judgment on them. Go look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. At some point when you can't, you'll see exactly what I'm saying here. He says, you're not to even dishonor them because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not for me to be vengeful upon you. I might want to, and sometimes I have. But that is the wrong response because even not only taking someone's life, but even attacking their humanity is attacking the glory of God. And when you do, verse 6 tells me, last part of verse 6, for in the image of God, excuse me, I'm sorry, I passed the forward part, I want to say, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That's the phrase I want you to notice. If I do kill somebody, then what is responsible? I'm responsible to take, my life is going to be taken from me. By man, it says, so therefore it is appropriate for the government ordained, because God has ordained governments, Romans 13, 1. It is appropriate for governments to take a person's life in order to be uh, to uh, revenge against or to take the, to um, retribute against uh, murder i also believe that it's not inappropriate to add in here that um, if there's life that's in danger if you're trying to protect your own life or your family's life to take another life as a way to protect that life that's that, the bible makes provisions for that in the law in fact there's provisions for that as well so this would not be, it would not be inappropriate to do that. And I know that sometimes, or even say on a battlefield and things like that, those would be appropriate things to protect life. But it is, as Leviticus 17.11 says, it's the blood that maketh atonement for your soul. If you shed blood, then your blood is shed. That's the answer to this. If you shed blood, then the, your blood must be shed. In fact, Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Sin cannot be taken away if blood is not shed. It's the reason that Romans 6.23 says that the wage of sin is death. That's why he said, because we've done something unto death, we deserve death as a result of that. And I want to make sure I say here, thank God Jesus died for me. Because, you see, what happened was, I, even though I did not maybe take someone's life, I have done at least what Jesus said, I've, I've, 
I have cursed people. I've wished judgment upon people. I have thought evil of other people. I've taken their humanity from them. We've all done that. That's something, that's why Jesus brought that up, because this is something that is normal for people to do. And even in that, my life needs to be taken because I've simply attacked the image of God. But Jesus, he said, I'm just going to go ahead and shed my blood for you. Blood needs to be shed. I'll shed it for you. So by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place and obtained eternal redemption for us, Hebrews says. He shed his blood in my place. So you remember I told you about Abel? He got killed and his blood was spilled on the ground. You know what his blood did? It cried out for vengeance. It cried out. That's what it did. And that's what any, any, any man or woman whose life is taken from them, that is the human reaction. His life has been taken and it cries out for vengeance. That's what happens. And by the way, we're seeing it in our nation. Uh, just go look at Atlanta right now and see what they're doing. That's what's happening in Atlanta. They are crying out for vengeance. Right, wrong, indifferent, that's what they're doing. But, this man, but a man's blood will shed, a man's blood is shed, will cry out for vengeance. But you know what Jesus' blood cries out for? Grace. Grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Because Jesus' blood was shed, it cries out for grace. 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 Thank God Jesus died for us. So I need to not take a human life, but also, as he says in verse 7, I need to actually be about preserving human life. He says there to be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth. It's not just enough to not kill, but I actually need to be in the business of multiplication. Multiplication, bringing more life, bringing more glory to God when I do that. We need to be like the midwives in Exodus chapter 1. The king had decreed that every firstborn baby boy would be killed. That's what he said. Now, they had a reason for doing that, but that was, that was, uh, that's what they were doing. Actually, it was a population control thing is why they were doing it. Uh, that's what they were doing. And uh, there were some midwives who were there to try to help these women as they were delivering, and they saved the babies instead of killing them like they were told to do. They actually made a point to save the babies. And do you know what God's response was to that? It says that he blessed them. It uses the phrase in that passage that he gave them a house, that he made their, their legacy to live on and on and on. He blessed those women because they, de they defied the government's order to do sin, to do wrong, to attack the image of God. They decided they would save those lives. We can also see this in James chapter 1 and verse 27 where we're told to care for widows and orphans. That's pure religion. There we are talking about people who might not be able to care for themselves, but we as a church, if we want to be pure religion, we're going to go help those people. Even 1 Timothy 5, 2-11 talks about caring for people in their older age when they, when they may not be able to as, as well as they could have once before care for themselves. It is the responsibility of the younger generation to care for the next generation. These are all symbols uh, or ideas of saying that we are about prepare, uh, preserving and holding on and even helping life to flourish when everything is against it. Jude says in Jude 22 and 23, and, and some have compassion making a difference and others save with fear. We need to care about people. We need to actually care about people. And the best way I can care about people, yes, I need to care for their body, and we understand that the body, it, 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 can, be, it can be in danger, and I need to help that, whether it's food or shelter or some other thing. 
But ultimately, I'm trying to reconcile them to Jesus. He's the one that paid the price for them. It's not just about stopping death, but it's actually about bringing them to, to life. You see, Jesus is going to make everything right, 1 Peter 5.10. He's going to make all things new, Revelation 21.5. And he's given that job of reconciling this world who's messed up with him who will fix everything. He's given that job to me and to you as Christians. It's our job. First, uh, second Peter, or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter five and verses seventeen through twenty. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. So, what are we going to do about all this? I'd like for McConnell Road Baptist Church to become a place where people know they can get help, where children are loved, where mothers, all mothers, but particularly those who are in crisis. They can come and be blessed. I would love that. I would love to know that this was a place where the poor knew they would be served and would be served and be able to serve other people. I would love it for people who are in need, whether it's spiritual, emotional, or physical, that they knew they could get some help here. I would love it for the down and out, that man who was on the edge of suicide, that he knew he could come here and get some counsel to be talked away from that. I'd love to have that reputation in this community. I'd like it if abortion-minded mothers knew that they could give a call to the number here at the church and say, you know what, I, I need some counseling, I need some encouragement, I need some financial help, I need some love, I need something, and them to actually get that. I'd love that. I, 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 I don't know how to get there, I can tell you that, but I'd love that. But you know, those are not policies and programs. Yes, they, they, I understand that to actually make some of that happen, you have to because you have to have money to do that. You have to have all, organization. I, I understand some of that, but it's not ultimately starting with policies and programs. You know where it starts? It starts with a matter of the heart. And I'm asking you, do not answer me out loud. Not that you would, but I want to make sure you know. I'm not asking you to answer me. You need to talk to the Lord about this. If any of those things, if I were to, if the phone were to ring and I'd have to say. Well, let me call somebody to get some help, and I were to call you, or if that lady or that man or whoever that was, they were to call you, would you at least have the heart to help them and the willingness to help them? And if the answer is at all any reservation, well, I don't have the whatever that is, it's a heart matter. It's a heart matter. We need to take these things. These are not decisions, by the way. You can't say, well, today we're just going to go ahead and decide we're going to do this or that. We, we, that's how... That's how Foolish vows get made. Do you understand? What we're going to do then instead is that we're going to ask God to transform us into people who can do what I was describing. That we care enough about life that we're actually going to help people who have needs. That's what I want us to do. But you know what that's going to be a matter of prayer? I could stand up here and I can implement some new policy, which would probably be flawed from the start, but let's just say I did. But if y'all don't go along with it, what good was it? You understand you're a church. It's not a company, not an organization. This is a church. It's made up of God's people. So my question is to you, will you commit, will you commit to praying this week?